Father, we have just paused for a few minutes this morning and remembered where we came from. We look back and we can only imagine, Father, where some of us would be today had it not been truly for your grace and mercy. For you have called us out of a desolate land, a despicable place, and set our feet upon solid rock. So, Father, this morning we boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. And we say thank you for your mercy and grace. As your people, we gather to get today together to sing, to pray, to give of offerings, and to give our hearts to you. We pray that as a result of having come together in this worship hour, we would leave here being energized to good works and good deeds. Father, there are those among us who are suffering today in our family. We think of those who have uh, received a difficult, discouraging news in the past few days, health problems, some have financial problems, uh, different kinds of setbacks. Lord, we lay those at your feet, believing and knowing that you are a God who is sympathetic to all of our troubles and all of our needs, and we, we lift these people up to you, and we ask that you intercede on their behalf, strengthen and encourage our fellow members, Father, in these difficult days. Father, we thank you for a place we call Grace Van, a place we can call home, a place where we have the opportunity to use our spiritual gifts to minister to your people. We thank you that you have widened our paths and set our feet, Lord, upon joyous and celebrative days. And it's this season of the year that we approach, Father, as Christians. And who else, Lord, could celebrate better than we can? We thank you for the gospel of grace. Father, we pray that you would bless uh, this offering as we give a portion back to you that you have given to us. Use it for the building of the kingdom of God and bless and prosper the giver this morning. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And we're going to read verses 1 through 18. So follow along with me. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, be, never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Now, before I begin making some comments this morning, I want to be sure that I finish the reading of the text. See, several weeks ago, I preached on a Sunday morning and received a complaint. Uh, it's not unusual around here to get complaints. And uh, a couple of days after the sermon, uh, a mother approached me and said, my young son was in the congregation while you preached. And although it was quite a good sermon, he said, I emphasize that, quite a good sermon, he was disappointed because Pastor Hall did not finish the reading of the text. So I make it a point today to finish the reading of the text. Here it goes. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. So I stand corrected today. <laughs> You've heard the saying, haven't you, that a text without context is a pretext. And it's a good saying. It helps us remember that as we study the Word of God, we need to put Scripture in context. Now, it's not always necessary to review context with the congregation or the audience or the class you're teaching, as long as you understand, as the teacher, the, te the context, and you remain true to context. But this morning is a little bit different, given the circumstances of our text. You see, if you don't appreciate or understand the context as the audience, you're going to miss the richness of what this pastor is trying to say. So here's a little bit of context. Just suppose that you were living around the year 50 AD, somewhere around the city of Jerusalem, and you were a Jew. Not only a Jew, but a recently converted Jew to Christianity. A Christian Jew. It wouldn't be unusual for you to attend one of the home or house churches meeting in the suburbs of Jerusalem, maybe led by James, the brother of Jesus. It wouldn't be unusual for you to go to that house church worship and look at the Word of God in relationship to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And then the next day to attend one of the functions in the temple. In fact, in the early years, Christianity, you see, was considered to be, by many, nothing more than an offshoot of Judaism. Just another class, another part of the Orthodox Judaism religion. In fact, the Roman leaders um, did not frown upon Christianity in the early days because they thought it to be just another class of Judaism. And so many of the Christian Jews maintained their attachments to the temple and the Levitical systems of worship. But these things were destined to change. Uh, soon the teaching of Paul would come, Paul's ministry of the Gentiles, and 
thousands of Greeks would flood into the early church, and that alone would force a final separation between the two. But there, was, there were two significant events that occurred in the last half of the first century that would bring a final separation between Judaism and Christianity. If you watch the History Channel this week, uh, on one night they covered both of these events under the uh, history of the Roman Empire. The first event occurred in A.D. 64, I think July 19th. You know what happened on that day? The great fire in the city of Rome. Out of 14 quarters of the city, only four remain, or escaped damage. Now initially, uh, the people blamed Nero, the emperor, because they, many thought he was crazy anyway, and he set the fire, city ablaze to make, new, make way for his new construction. But Nero was cunning and crafty, and he shifted blame first on the Jews and ultimately on the Christians, and a horrific persecution ensued. This was the period of time when many of the Christians living in and around the city of Rome fled to the catacombs because they were being slaughtered by the hundreds. And that was the first event. The second major event occurred about six years later in the year A.D. 70. Now between A.D. 65 and 70, the Jews in Judea revolted against the Romans, and they raised quite an uh, impressive army and stood their ground for several years against the Roman uh, legions. Somewhere late in A.D. 69, Nero died, and Vespasian, one of the, emperor, one of the um, rulers, uh, captains of the army, was uh, elected emperor. And so he sent his son Titus to Jerusalem to finally put down the Jewish rebellion. And in AD 70, the city of Jerusalem was conquered and the temple was destroyed. Now these are significant events, gang, because this, these events were important because they forfeited any chance of the Christ, that the Christians might have had of being recognized as a, a legal religion separate from Judaism. And then the loss of these outward means of expressions for the Jews. They lost their temple, they lost their government, they lost their, their land. They lost most of their essential system, their identity. And they, these losses forced the Jews to the worship solely of the law, the Old Testament. And consequently, legalism was strengthened more and more. Now, these events forced the Hebrew Christian living in and around the city of Rome to a final decision. Here's, here's the decision they had to make. How were they to interpret the Old Testament law? Were they to look at the Old Testament and interpret it in light of the orthodox teachings of the rabbi and as a result view the Old Testament as a, just a static interpretation? Or were they to view all of Scripture in light of the teachings of Jesus the Messiah? And if so, if so, it meant that they would turn away from Orthodox Judaism, legalism, to grace. And as a result, they would be recognized as traitors by their fellow Jews and troublemakers by Rome. And these are the circumstances, these are the events that are going on that forced these young Hebrew Christians in the city of Rome to make a decision and this was not an easy decision. Many had begun to waver in their stand for Christ. They were considering going back to Judaism. Now, gang, the book of Hebrews was written to meet this dilemma. 
It was written to a group of Christians who had never seen Jesus in person, and yet they had believed. And their conversion to Christianity had brought them hardships and persecutions, and as a result, they were considering turning back. Now imagine what it would be like on a given night in some secret meeting in someone's home. You were a young Jewish Christian living in Rome, and you're meeting there that night, and you're afraid of your life. You, you fear for your very well-being. Many of your friends have already been taken captive. Some have lost their life because they took a stand for Christ. And you're meeting there together in one of these house churches late one night. And there are questions like, does God know what's going on? If so, how could this be happening to us? Does he care? Only God can protect us. Where is God? Why doesn't he answer us? And then news comes that a letter is on its way. Some instructions are coming, maybe from a former pastor who ministered to those people. He's writing back. To, he gets news of their situation, and he's writing a letter of encouragement back. And this is what he sends, the book of Hebrews. Now, the grand theme of this book is the supremacy and the finality of Christ. We see it in the very opening verses of chapter 1. He says in verse 1, In these last days God has spoken, and He has spoken by His Son. Verse 3, He says, The Son, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory. Now I've chosen our text, of chapter 10, the first 18 verses, because I think it's a good summary of this pastor's view and understanding of Christ and what Christ has done for his people. Now the first thing I want to point out in these verses is, number one, Christ is supreme because he is the perfect sacrifice. Christ is supreme because he is the perfect sacrifice. Now here's what this pastor is attempting to accomplish. By focusing on Christ's unique sacrifice, He's emphasizing the ineffectiveness of the Levitical system. You see it? To a group of Christians who were thinking about going back to Judaism, the pastor says, the law is only a shadow, verse 18, the law, are, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. If you were to visit my in-law's home, in their family room, there is this enlarged photograph of Carla. And it was taken during, um, you know, the, the months prior to your senior year in high school. It's a beautiful picture. Every time I go over there, just about every time I'm there visiting their house, I, I take a few minutes and stop and look at that photograph. And I stand there, and it just brings back a flood of memories. I, I dated, I married my high school sweetheart. I met Carla when she was in the ninth grade. I was a senior in high school. We dated for several years, then we were engaged a year, and then we got married. I stand there and look at that picture, and it just brings back all kinds of memories. I remember the blouse she had on when she had that picture made. I remember the corduroy jumper she had on, and that long, flowing blonde hair, and beautiful blue eyes. Um, one summer, I think it was the summer before her senior year in high school, Carla was gone almost all summer long. She went on a cheerleading to a cheerleading camp, a church choir trip, family vacation, and for three months, 
I was, I just wasn't worth killing. I was lovesick. Couldn't see her, but just a couple of times that summer. All I had was a small print of that picture I carried in my billfold. I was so proud of it. She would show it to everybody. Here's my girlfriend. Isn't she beautiful? It was a horrible summer. A couple of weeks ago, I spent about seven days, actually seven days out of town without Carla, and uh, boy, it was a long week. I don't like traveling without her any, anymore. We've been married many years now. And, uh, <laughs> I came home on a Sunday night, and we um, I got out to the airport. You know, you go down to the lower level, went outside, and had my luggage. I was waiting on her to come pick me up. And she pulls up in the line of traffic, and I get in the car, and we head home. Now, you know that Sunday night, we did not stop at her parents' house so I could look at that photograph. Now, we could have. It, would have, it was right on the way. It, would have been, it was early in the evening, been very convenient to stop by, so I could get a glimpse of Carla in that picture. You know why we didn't stop? Because 22 years ago, on a Friday night in June, I stood right down in, a, in, a, in the center of a church, center aisle, and I stood there and I watched this beautiful blue-eyed blonde walk down that aisle. And that night in June, I took her hand and we made a covenant together. And on that Friday night in June, I traded in that photograph, that mere reflection, for the real thing. Now, you can look at my billfold today, and I don't have a picture of my wife. It's because I enjoy the real thing. You get the point? Now, how absurd would it be for anyone, after having substance, the real thing, to go back to a mere shadow? And yet, some in the early church were considering returning back to a mere reflection. Now, if I can apply it to us here in modern-day evangelical churches, uh, it, isn't it amazing that in a church, a place we call Grace Evangelical Church, Grace Evan, there are some of us who continue to substitute mere reflections for the real thing. There are some of us who, after having been set free by grace after having, been after having tasted the sweet waters of God's grace. We continue to live under the law. There are all kinds of substitutes we could mention this morning. There's the substitute of, um, of debt. I just heard Friday on a report on the news that the majority of consumer debt, not, not the good kind of debt that the country needs, but bad debt, the majority of consumer debt, credit card debt, is the result of some emotional appetite. Looking for satisfaction in other things. Debt, money can come, become a substitute for the real thing. The church can become a substitute for the real thing. When the church, a church like Gracie Van, is reduced to a mere social construct, it becomes a substitute 
for the real thing. Gang, the Christian under law is a miserable parody of the real thing. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Then in verse 3, the pastor continues to contrast, uh, to make the contrast between Christ and the law. He says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Now here's the picture. All of the elaborate and costly systems that God put in place himself, all of these systems were nothing more than an annual reminder of their sins. I've got a about a three-inch scar on my right leg, right thigh, that reminds me of my past sin. When I was a young boy, one afternoon I was out mowing the lawn at home, and my mother told me when I started, she said, do not mow over on this side of the front lawn. It's not safe. Don't mow over there. Well, I was doing my uh, chores and duty to cut the grass, and she, in the meantime, she went in the backyard to do some things in the flower beds or something, and uh, I was determined to finish it all. So I continued to mow over there. And I, uh, I ran over a piece of chain-link fence that was buried down beneath the grass level. I couldn't see it. And this was before the days you had those rear guards on the lawnmower. And like shrapnel, that chain-link fence broke uh, the back of the lawnmower and went into my leg just a few inches from um, taking my life. And every time I undress or shower and I look at that scar on my leg, it's a constant reminder of my disobedience. Now, friend, uh, that's maybe a trivial illustration. But in much the same way, this was the dilemma of the Jew. Their rituals became like a scar to them. And God himself had ordered the Hebrew calendar in such a way that the people were never completely free from the haunting burden and curse of sin. There was one special day in the, in the Hebrew calendar. They called the Day of Atonement. And there was no day more significant to the Jew than the Day of Atonement. Today it's known as Yom Kippur. It's the Hebrew word meaning ransom or hush money. Yom Kippur was the day, or is the day, that the Jews, as a nation, as a people, seek propitiation of a God against whom they had sinned. It's on that day that the people are reminded that the law of Moses can either bring a blessing or a curse. That's the nature of the law. And that was the nature of this special day, the Day of Atonement. They understood that perfect obedience would secure God's blessing, but anything less would result in a curse. And the yearly repetition repeated the failure. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, if it could have brought forgiveness of sins, that is the sacrifices, would they not have stopped being offered? I love what he says in verse 5. I love that word, therefore. He says, therefore he came to do the will of the Father. Verse 9, he sets aside the first, to establish the second. Christ is supreme because he is the perfect sacrifice. Secondly, Christ is supreme because he alone, he alone can forgive sins. In verse 11 and following, we get a little bit of glimpse of what went on inside the temple, the activities of the priest inside the temple. 
And you would never see a priest sitting in the temple. In fact, if you were there and could go through the temple, you wouldn't even find a chair in the temple because the priests were always standing. Their work was never done because the people were never clean. Carl and I have just entered a new phase in our lives. Our children are off at school. One's off working and going to school, and Holly's off going to school full time. And so things have changed quite a bit around our house. Uh, several weeks ago, sometime late, late August, I was sitting at the dinner at the table in the breakfast area in the kitchen eating dinner, and I, um, I heard an, an unfamiliar sound. It was the refrigerator in the kitchen running. <laughs> and it dawned on me that for 20 years, just about every night we would sit down to dinner, we couldn't hear anything but the washer and dryer going in the room next to us. And the clothes were never cleaned, it seemed like. It was a constant thing at our house, washing clothes. You'd get one load done. You can tell I help around the house, can't you? You get one load done, and you go in the hamper, and there's some more dirty jeans in there. The clothes were never clean. Would you like to dust just one more time and never have to dust the house again? Wouldn't it be great? Gang, the work was never done because the people were never clean. Now, here's what I'm saying. You can pile shadow upon shadow upon shadow and still have no substance. Now, why, did the, then, why then did God go to the trouble of establishing such an elaborate and costly system of shadows? What's the deal? Because even the shadow had a purpose. And when I was dating Carla and had that photograph in my billfold, on occasions I would look at that photograph and that photograph would remind me that she's worth waiting on. Hang in there. One day the real thing is coming. In the same sense, that's what the sacrifices did. Continually reminded the people that substance was coming. It made the people expectant on the coming Christ. Not only that, it reminded the people of the penalty of sin. Gang, if, if the Jew of the Old Testament learned anything, he learned that the life of the body was in the blood. Now, we picture the temple as a beautiful scene. We picture the sacrifices as a beautiful scene, but in fact, it was a bloody mess. There were special channels made just to drain excess carnage and blood away from the temple area. It was a constant thing. And the blood reminded the people that they were sinners and there was a price to pay for sins. And that's why the writer of Hebrews so beautifully pins these words. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Again, if we're going to properly interpret this text, if we're going to get the true meaning out of this story, why this writer writes this way, we've got to answer these questions. Why did this pastor choose to encourage the Hebrew Christians this way? Why did this pastor pin one of the greatest works on Christology to a group of people who were facing persecutions? Why is he filled with the urgency to preach Christ? And here's the answer. 
Because through Christ, God has spoken the final word. Through Christ, God has spoken the final word. I love what he says in verse 17. Look at it. Their sins, we can change it. Our sins and our lawless acts, God will remember no more. That's his promise to us. I will remember them no more. I told you one time in a sermon how God taught me the meaning of that passage. Can I tell you the story again? It happened in our house again. I'm sorry if I've used my home too much as illustrations this morning, but that's where life takes place for me. But in, it happened in one night in our kitchen. Carla was gone somewhere. Holly was in the kitchen with me, and something happened. I don't remember all the circumstances, but I reacted wrong as a father, and my actions deeply offended Holly. And so much so that it, she broke into tears. She was standing, I'll never forget it, she was standing in the corner, in, in one of the corners of the cabinets there in the countertop. And she had her hand, her face down in her hands and she was weeping there. And it just crushed me to see her hurt so. I got up from the table and I walked over to Ollie and I, I pulled her into my arms and I said, Polly, would you please forgive me for hurting you so? I left and went upstairs into the bedroom and shut the door. And I walked into the bathroom and shut the door there and got on my knees beside the bathtub and began to pray and confess my sins to God. And, and he forgave me of offending Holly. I not only offended her, but I defended him as, a, as an earthly father. And he forgave me of that sin. But then the thought occurred to me while there on my knees... God, you have forgiven me of this sin, but, but what if 10 years from now, Holly brings it up again? She remembers this horrible night and she brings this up again and it causes her to stumble because of my sins. What if that happens? And I remembered this verse. I will remember them no more. And I realized what he's saying. The Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father is saying to us, I will never bring your sins up again. That's what the grace of God has done for us. The wonderful forgiveness of God. There's one final story I want to tell that I think really solidifies this, uh, this message of the Hebrew text. It's a story told by John White, who is the author of uh, the book, The Fight. We've got this book over in, I think, in the bookstore. I know it's in the library. It's a wonderful book. It's a practical guide to Christian living, written by John White. You ought to get this book and read it. It's a wonderful text. But John White tells this story about the birth of his first son, Scott. The Whites were missionaries for several years in South America. And while they were serving on the field in Bolivia, their oldest son, Scott, was born. And Scott was born badly crippled. And uh, his legs were confined to what looked like to be brutal splints. And for the first two years of his life, little Scott even had to learn to walk the best he could in those splints. After he was about two years old, the splints came off. And John said, it was like... It was like releasing a, a young stallion into the countryside. Almost, even though Scott didn't know how to run, it was like instinct. He had to run. 
And almost immediately, he took his first fall. And the fall split his chin, put a deep gash in his chin all the way up to the bottom of his lip. And they were a long way from any medical, any medical attention. In fact, the nearest hospital was hundreds of miles away. John said he, he had no surgical kits in his house, but he knew that he had to do something to close the wound to infection. When you're out that far away from civilization, even minor injuries can become life-threatening. He said all that he could find in the house was a pair of tweezers, household needle, and thread, and no way to deaden pain. He continues, he continues to tell the story how firm family hands held down young Scott on the table as he inflicted what must have been like indescribable pain on this young lad. He said it was almost pure agony as he took the tweezers and would take the skin and time after time jab the needle through the skin to close the wound. Again, I didn't tell you that story to be dramatic this morning, to make you squirm in your seat. It was difficult enough reading it for the first time. I tell you that story because of what John White said afterwards. Here's what he said next. He said, through that experience, I learned two things about God our Father. He said, first of all, I learned that God is not a sadist. That is, he takes no delight in our sufferings. And if we as earthly fathers would grieve and hurt over the sufferings of our own children, how much more does our heavenly Father grieve and sorrow for us? That's why the writer of Isaiah would pin these words, in all their afflictions, God, God our Father was afflicted. I learned that God was not a sadist. Secondly, John said, I learned that although pain is magnified by fear, and isn't it? It's dramatically alleviated by understanding and trust. We might, as John did, have trouble conveying to our young children what we're doing and that what we're doing to them is for their own good. But God does convey to us, and he has conveyed to us, that all he is doing in this life presently is for our own good. And as the Hebrews, who are facing severe persecution in life, the message to them is the same as it is, it is for us today. Whatever your circumstances might be, whatever you've substituted in your life for the real thing, whatever phase in life you might be in, heartache, tragedy, suffering, anything that causes you to look back, the message is the same. We must not forget that through Christ, God has spoken his final word. So the question for us this morning is, so what? I mean, if this is the great doctrine of the book of Hebrews, so what? What relevance does it have for us today? It's found in the very next verse. We didn't read this verse, verse 19. There's that word again, therefore. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, then he says, draw near to God 
with a sincere heart. And that's the call upon our lives. There, gang, there is no excuse for casual Christianity. There is no excuse for a mediocre commitment. We are to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And we're to draw near to God with a sincere heart with all that we have. The bottom line is this. We have a decision to make. If he is the Messiah, if Christ was who he said he was, it changes everything in life. It changes our whole view, our whole understanding of life. God has spoken his final words, and he has spoken them through Jesus Christ. Our Father, our purpose today has not been to preach a, a great sermon. It's not been to creatively communicate to your people. We've probably failed at that. Our purpose has been to preach truth and to preach Christ so that sinners would be humbled and Christ would be glorified. Father, we confess to you this morning that often we have substituted mere reflections for the real thing. We've settled for something less than the best when all the while we have available to us the message of hope, the promises of a covenant-keeping God. And we thank you for that. And our prayer is today, as we leave this place, that we would be encouraged in our Christian life. Change hearts, Father, today. Change the hearts of those who have um, lived in the kingdom of darkness. Bring them to the kingdom of light. Save the lost today, Father, and renew the Christian heart. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've chosen to close this morning with a piece of that hymn that we sang earlier this morning. I, I, I love the words to this verse. When I survey the wondrous cross, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too.